0: Please stand and hear his call into worship. Friends, God speaking in his word, calls you to give him the worship that he desires. From Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitudes be glad. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is humbling that you desire to meet with us, your people, uh, today. Uh, You who are complete, not lacking in anything Uh, Our praises don't add to your glory, our adoration does not increase your holiness, our repentance does not vindicate your justice, and even our study of your word does not prove your truth. Rather, you are forever and infinitely holy, just, good, righteous, and glorious, apart from anything we might think or say. Or do. Yet in your mercy you decreed to save your people and restore us to yourself that we might do what we were created to do from the beginning to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you. We thank you for this day and this time now to gather with other saints. Be with us in every aspect of this worship service. Amen. Well, here now. Our reading from the sermon text, Romans, chapter 1. I'm going to start making a little bit faster progress as we go verse by verse, uh, as opposed to the uh, word by word thus far these past months. I'll be reading Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. You're then God's holy and infallible word. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome. Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and ask you to open our ears and hearts that we might hear, understand, and be renewed by it. Please guide my mouth as I speak, that it may speak forth truthfully your word, your wisdom, that I would not stray into the supposed wisdom of men. So bless us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Well, a man returned from his honeymoon and spoke of the beautiful sights, the delicious food, uh, the nice hotels that were part of this great vacation, even had a upgrade for a nicer rental car. His summary statement was, vacation of a lifetime. That was his remark. Truly a great trip, big smile, excited fellow. I ask you, do you note anything missing, anything lacking from his description of the honeymoon? The obvious thing, well, what about your wife? <laughs> it sounded like, was she even there, maybe? <laughs> So, uh, did they have any special moments uh, together? Uh, did they grow closer together? Uh, it would appear that maybe the focus, or at least the way this fellow is summarizing, uh, looking back on the trip, is something, at least, is askew. Uh, perhaps the man was not careful in how he worded himself, or perhaps, in fact, sadly, it would seem kind of crazy, but it's possible that his uh, emphasis and his memory is misplaced. Well, with that brief and made-up story, because things like that never happen, right? Uh, I hope to highlight the fact that it is all too easy for us to lose track of the true focus of the things we take for granted every day. Indeed, to lose focus of and lose track of the important core of the gospel. God is The focus of the gospel. He is the focus of all history, even every aspect of the history of redemption. He is the focus of what we call the gospel, which is the focus, obviously, of the Christian religion. God is the focus of the Bible. He's the focus of the work of the (coughs) church. God should be, and he needs to be, the focus of each and every one of our lives, and indeed every aspect of every one of our lives. So our focus for today is simple, the gospel of God. A word is slightly different in English. God's gospel. There are so many things the gospel is not. There's some things that the gospel includes, and I will mention those things, but I want to draw special attention to what the focus, the heart of the gospel is. So we're going to be looking at, and to put this in the context of where we've been going thus far, uh, word by word through verse 1, Next time I'm with you, Lord willing, we'll be entirely on verse 2 and then verse 3, so larger chunks. But thus far, and so bringing it to today, we are looking at the gospel that Paul, the person, in serving Jesus, was called to, served as an apostle as, was separated unto. All of those are factors describing and focusing on the gospel of God. So it's essential with those pieces before us and these other links beyond us in the rest of the introduction, and indeed the whole book, to know the focus. What is the gospel that Paul was communicating? He was separated from something to something, and indeed he was separated to the gospel that we will look at today. And the key point, summary statement, as I have it here on the outline sheets, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is the heart of the glorious gospel. Let's begin first with some definitions, and by that I mean the basic meanings of the words, the building block of this clause, the gospel of God. The First, uh, gospel, Greek evangelium, is composed of two parts, actually. It's a, a two-part word in the Greek, meaning good and message, and so that's how we get, and it varies in the English translations. Some have it uh, glad tidings or good news, uh, joyful news, so nothing complicated there. Good message is the basics of it. And the second part of our clause is God, or of God, grammatically, uh, normally, the genitive form, and that's how we get the of, is translated in English, so the genitive form is translated uh, by adding the of word into our language. Uh, thus, we have uh, what the New King James and most other English translations have as gospel of God. In English thinking, it's easy to think of, and often it is the case, that the genitive communicates possession. So the book of Michael is Michael's book. We would rearrange it in English by adding the apostrophe S as a possessive form. So the gospel of God is God's gospel. But just like in English, there's different aspects to the genitive case. Uh, Not all genitive in Greek means possessive, and not all in uh, English does it either. Uh, One other aspect of the genitive in Greek uh, has to do with source. And so here we could properly understand it as the gospel that was sourced in God, originated from him. Uh, We can appropriately speak of the gospel being sourced in his will in eternity past. Uh, You'll note that the title here, obviously, by converting it to that apostrophe as God's gospel, I want to emphasize the gospel that he owns, the gospel that he if you will, makes the rules about, right? We're we're not at liberty to uh, change the principles of it, uh, the way it works, because it's not ours. It's something we got from God. He owns it. So by virtue of the title, as I've stated there, God's Gospel, definitely emphasizing the genitive of possession. But as we continue here, I don't want you to lose sight of that genitive of source. It is about him. It relates to him. It comes from him. It is rooted in his character as the divine being. So both the genitive of source as well as the genitive of possession. So to summarize thus far, the gospel is God's, it comes from him, and it is his with him as its center, core, and owner. Well, beyond uh, the bare use of those words, the euangelion hafeos, beyond the meaning of these, we have Uh, the way that those words were used in the language and the culture of Paul's time. Just like we have idioms, phrases we use, and they're taken from a meaning that people out in general conversation would understand, and then brought into maybe an ecclesiastical context and certainly the scriptural context. So what's the background? What would Paul's hearers have heard and understood, at least a little bit, as he starts to add the theological meaning to it? And it is twofold, Uh, one in Israelite culture and then also in Roman culture. So in biblical history, so if we look at how the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used this word. Uh, One example, Isaiah 52. So in biblical history, it was uh, hearkening back to the messengers sent on foot who announced freedom from Babylonian captivity in the 6th century. So the Jewish exiles as they journeyed back to Jerusalem, they had these heralds going before them, saying, this is the message, this is the good news that we carry. We are headed back to the homeland. So that is a Jewish or Israelite context. And then in Paul's day, within Roman culture, Evangelion was also used regarding Roman activities. So it wasn't exclusively among the Jews. Uh, As one writer, this is a commentator, he states it. So good news was used among the Romans referring to an announcement of glad tidings regarding a birthday, a rise to power, or a decree of the emperor that was to herald the fulfillment of hope and peace and well-being in the world, that is, the known world at the time, the extent of the Roman Empire. So note, at this point, sort of by way of a caution, how important it is that we detail which gospel, right? Is this a Roman gospel? Is this a, a Jewish temporal gospel of, oh, we've had you know physical chains released from us? Whose gospel, whose good news, whose glad tidings are we speaking of? This is why it's essential that we have it rooted in God's ownership of the gospel and it being sourced in him. Because there's other good newses that have other sources and have other owners and hence different principles, different stipulations, etc. But God's gospel, again, is rooted in him comes from him and is owned by him. And we even hear this in our common culture. You know, there's some catastrophe, a school shooting, a tornado, and the newscasters talked about you know, good wishes and our prayers are with you. And I'm like, <coughs> and who would you be praying to? You know, what are you wishing for? Uh, so the sentiment goes out. It's part of the human condition to want to empathize with people in times of trouble. But what is the source? What is the end goal of those well wishes? Same here. What is the source? What is the end goal of those glad tidings? Because people are hungry for news of progress, for hope, for solutions in times of trouble. They want peace. They want resolution to their troubles. But Satan's demons are all too ready and willing to offer a devious substitute, right? To get people off track. So to, do, to seduce them into some solution that really is no solution at all. The world's good news, so called, can be a very subtle and often the case when people don't have spiritual discerning eyes, a very effective imposter. It may produce feelings that are similar. There might even be some outward activities that somebody does according to those glad tidings of the world that are very similar. But is it the true gospel? Is it God's gospel? Does it come from God? Is it founded by Him? Is He At its center, does it radiate his glory? Does it magnify his son? These are some of the evidences of the authenticity of the true gospel. And further, as an evidence of authenticity, does that gospel that people speak of crucify the person's flesh, or does it make things easier and more comfortable? Uh, Does it crush our pride? Or does it make us think, hey, I'm okay, I'm not that bad, I'm not as bad as the others, I'm on a path, a path that will ultimately, so they tell me, get to a good place, or instead, does it lead to destruction? So friends, beware. Hear the warning that Paul gave. And here, let me quote from his letter to his friends in Galatia, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He wrote, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different place gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed." So Paul acknowledges that there are other Gospels so-called, but then it's quick to say that they are not authentic, genuine Gospels. There is only one true and genuine Gospel. So friends, not all Gospels so-called are alike. There is only one. All others are perversions of the truth and bring a curse. So please be aware. That's why I prayed earlier for spiritual discernment in our homes, uh, in our nation, certainly in your congregation. I could have added to that our workplaces Please beware and pray for that discernment and protection to keep on the narrow path of Jesus Christ. Well, Now, for our third section here, the messages. What is the message, and there's uh, four of them I will touch on briefly, that the true gospel brings? So if the message is a good news, a good message, good details being brought to tell us kind of a yay, this is what we're celebrating. Here let me propose for you, there's four sub-messages within the true gospel of God's word. First, that it's a message about God, it regards his character. So we will not have a proper concept of God's gospel if we don't first know his character. He is holy. The good news only exists in the foundational and fundamental context of God's absolute holiness. There is no fault or flaw in him. He is perfect in all of his attributes. Utterly and essentially. And by essential, I mean it just is who he is. He can't be who he is without these things being true. Utterly. And essentially righteous and good Because he is who he is He must punish sin As we'll get to here shortly As Romans 6 speaks it The wages of sin is death It's just the way the economy works right? The moral economy Sin gets death God in his holiness Originally gave life But uh, by bringing us into the world, yet by our sin we deserve death. And this is just rooted in the essential nature of who God is. Holy. And so then obviously it links to the second one. It's a message about man. Who are we? When we correctly understand who God is and then see who man is, we have the foundation for the gospel. The gospel is a message about man. We rebelled. You and I are conceived sinners with original sin. And then we do actual sins, right? We might, by God's grace, be doing better than we did yesterday, but we're still sinning. We still need God's mercy. And those who are not sinned, they still have an accumulating, accumulating debt of guilt before a holy God that only he can solve. The scriptures remind us of these truths. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let us not be fooled that our little sins, our daily mystiques, are in a different category, right? No, it says here, the wrath of God comes against all ungodliness. Small ungodliness. Big ungodliness. Ungodliness that your friends know about. Ungodliness that they don't know about. Ungodliness that you've been hiding from your boss or whoever. All ungodliness receives God's wrath. Uh, Further in Romans 3, quoting from uh, Psalm 14... There is none righteous, no not good. So here we're describing the natural state of man, apart from God's grace. And further, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that is the message that the gospel brings. And You might be saying, well, wait a second, I thought this was glad tidings, right? Good news. What's good news about the horribleness of our sin? That every day we do things that deserve God's wrath. Why is that good? Well, it's good because it crushes us and it leads us in desperation to find a true solution, which is where we find in point C and D. So with that as the foundation, God's holiness, our lack of holiness, we see how God responds, how he provides a solution. The gospel is the message about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who takes, does take, presently has taken, continues to take <coughs> sin from his people he lived a perfect life in obedience to the law at every single aspect not a single failure lived righteously gives us his righteousness and takes our sin upon himself he brought to us that holiness of God in heaven we didn't have to uh, try to invent it ourselves indeed we never could the celebration comes in second Corinthians 9:15. Paul exclaims, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And then continuing, he says, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. This is describing that wonderful work of Christ on our behalf. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And one more quote from Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That is the good news. The good news in that aspect could not be good if we thought, well, I'm good enough. Why do I need this redemption, right? I'm getting there on myself. So only by being crushed, as we saw in step B, is the sweetness of Jesus' work truly sweet to our parched and hungry Tongues. but it isn't merely the gospel message, part C, this little fact, you know, hanging from a tree out there that we see, it needs to be responded to, so that's why I word it in, in point D, the gospel is a message about two demands, and uh, I say demands because they're commands, right, in the uh, original language, this is a command, an imperative, we technically speak of it, this is not an optional thing, repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1, is a command. You are disobedient if you fail to believe the gospel. It's not that the people out there shopping on Sunday are disobedient merely because they're going to stores and breaking the Sabbath rules. They are disobedient because they are not submitting to God. They are not believing unto salvation. They have neglected these commands. But let us think about those two points repent and believe. Two gospel demands. How do we answer? How have you Answered. Uh, Pride and obstinance answers. So I'm going to say, everybody does answer, right? Nobody doesn't answer. We all answer one way or another. Pride and obstinance answers, I'll do it my own way. I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. Or maybe tomorrow and next week, next year, I'll think about it deeper. Rather, humility and repentance answers, woe is me, a sinner. Humility and repentance, or the humble and repentant one, receives the gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is where we all need to be. That is the gospel reply to these two gospel demands. So thus far, let me summarize for us. The gospel is a message of glad tidings and we need to see the the goodness of these tidings with God's eyes, not fallen man's eyes or we'll miss the message. Uh, There is only one gospel because there is only one God and the gospel is rooted in God's holiness, comes against man's sinfulness and finds solution in Jesus' righteousness on the cross and in freeing his sinners from the penalty of their sins. And the gospel is a message of a demanded, a required response. Again, not optional. But God gives grace that we might reply reply rightly. So I hope you can see the simplicity thus far of the gospel. Not complex, but simple. But coming to some conclusions. I don't mean conclusion like, whoa, sermon's over. He's only got five minutes to tie this up. But rather some things we conclude from uh, these statements I've made thus far. Because stating in its simplicity, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact of a couple things. First is the truly incredible nature of the gospel. Let us not just, because we've heard this a bunch of times, because, Lord Willie, you were raised in Christian homes or have been well-taught since your adult conversion, that you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's nice, okay, heard that before, let me move on. No, let us pause for a moment and soak in the amazingness of the gospel. It didn't have to be this way, right? God did not owe any sinners anything. Didn't owe Abraham anything. Didn't owe all of those who were in Abraham by faith anything. It's only by his good pleasure that he saved one or a million or billions throughout world history. So it is amazing and priceless. And so even acknowledging the sheer grandeur of God's kindness and mercy in saving so many, uh, if we stopped here... Uh, It would be akin, slightly, to the man on the honeymoon, coming home and talking about the great travel arrangements. We've missed the heart of it, I would say, because the benefits, as I've referred to thus far, of Christ's redemption, uh, commonly referred to as the double imputation, uh, eternal life in heaven, being saved from our sins is the colloquial term, that's not all there is to it. Having your sins forgiven is huge, but that is not all there is. Uh, Think of what man in the garden had uh, before the fall. Uh, The first man, Adam, had fellowship with God. He enjoyed God's presence. But by his willful rebellion, he and all men who followed him are alienated from God's presence. We don't have, did not have that relationship with him that we were intended to have. That was the original joy and sweetness of that fellowship in the garden we are naturally, as I noted earlier, subject to God's wrath. So if it's soaked in slightly, the beauty, the wonder, the awe of God's uh, mercy in saving us, now see that opposite of the distance we had from God, the heinousness of our sin that brought upon us God's wrath. So the true end of the gospel is to be restored to what we had in the garden. The conclusion of the good news is our renewed access to God's presence. Restored fellowship with God is, if you will, the goodest news of the gospel. So yes, it's good news to be forgiven of our sin, to have our guilt removed, to know that Jesus is preparing a room for us in that mansion, as he terms it, that is heaven and for eternity. But if God wasn't there and we had a nice setup in heaven, would it really be the good news? No. It is that we go to heaven without this stain of sin and are restored in holiness. And because of all that, we are able to be in God's presence. That is the end goal of the gospel. That's what makes it truly good. That God is there. That we are reconciled to him. That we will see him face to face. So that is where I'm headed here in this last portion Either listen to these scriptures, or if you want to turn with me, let me uh, illustrate this to you from God's word. First Peter three. Fingers are a little cold; not turning pages so well. So, First Peter three, verse eighteen. I will only read half of it, and then the second half you'll see clearly in a moment. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. So that's stating the historical fact of Christ's suffering and the historical reality that we're sinners, right? That's a very blunt statement about how bad we are and the work that God in Christ did in his earthly ministry. So I don't want you to think that I'm minimizing the historical reality of Christ's ministry here on earth. The incarnation was essential. His whole 30 plus years of ministry was essential. These things really happen. We're not just looking for some spiritual significance to pick out of it. No, Jesus walked the earth, he lived, he died, and it's termed here by Peter, Christ also suffered once. And why did he do so? For our sins. He being just for us who were unjust. So multiple scriptures attest to the fact that Jesus had miraculous conception, lived a sinless life, atoned in his death, and rose for our justification. All these things really happened. Heaven is real, and Christians will dwell there forever because the great works Jesus did in history. Yet, that is not all. There is more. The key result of these historical events is the restoration of relationship with the Holy God. That relationship that was broken by the fall has been mended. And it's the second half of the verse there, right after where I stopped, where Peter makes this clear. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being brought to God. That is the journey we are on. We don't just go to heaven to have a place that's more comfortable than where we are now, where thankfully tears are wiped away, there's no more sin, no more trials, <coughs> etc. Yes, that's all true. But we are being brought to God, and we have the peace and the joy and the renewed fellowship of the original creation that we have lost in the meantime. Uh, Otherwise, worded in Romans 5:1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our ultimate response to this great reconciliation is joy, to enjoy God. If you're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the chief end of man? To enjoy God God forever. Psalm 1611 tells us, in God's presence is fullness of joy. So we have here the historical core, that reality. Jesus really did walk the earth. He really did miraculously heal people. He never sinned. He confronted unrighteousness. He revealed the hypocrisy of all these pretenders. He died on the cross. He rose the third day and more. With a significant, or not significant, I mean an immense uh, result for our individual salvation, for our eternal destiny, and for the restoring of relationship with God. Let us not skip over the atonement. Let us also not stop short of that restoration of the relationship. We would be shortchanging God if we cut out any of that. Remember that God is pleased with his Son. Everything that Jesus did pleased the Father, and in Christ, we are part of that. And uh, to emphasize the the in-Christness and uh, the ministry that Jesus is involved in for us, let me look at uh, these scriptures with you under section 4C. I've titled it Behold Your God. And here I really want to bring together how is it that Jesus... Uh, the eternal Son of God having walked the earth, but now sitting at the right hand of the Father. How is it that he brings us into this relationship with Him? How is it that we behold God uh, through Christ? So first is those verses from uh, John John 14 as well as John 8. So think of it this way. Uh, Jesus, as we read, He is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he is the path. He is the way we get to the Father. He is the only way to be reconciled. And of course, in order to be reconciled, we have to have our sin taken away. We have to have that righteousness restored to us. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And that's John 14:6. Uh, he's also the light, John 8:12. Uh, I often think of that light as uh, like the light that brightens a path so we know how to get to the Father. Maybe a, a flashlight on a dark trail if you're on a city street and the street lights have gone out. It gets really dark really fast. So if you've got a flashlight, at least you can illuminate your little pathway to make it through safely. But biblically, as God always has a habit of doing, kind of blowing our expectations wide open, think of that light that lights our path on a much grander scale. Uh, think of it in terms of the radiance of the original creation. And Scripture tells us that that same light <clears throat> gives us knowledge of God in Christ unto salvation. And this is from 2 Corinthians 3. Again, if you want to turn with me there. I'm not just making up this analogy or expanding it, looking back at the original creation, but this is the picture that Paul paints in 2 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> The very end of the chapter. He writes, But we all, so this is Christians, uh, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, The but is there to be in the sentence because he's drawing a contrast. Those people out there, they can't see, they don't have light. They're blinded. They're walking in ungodliness. But you, Corinthian Christians, but you, brothers and sisters in the 21st century in Lincoln, Nebraska, we with them have the veil removed. We do have the light. And we behold, being able to see now in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. So we have liberty. We have new ability to see God we see God reflected in the face as of Christ. It isn't a perfect or a direct beholding. It is in a mirror is the term. But a bit further on, and now we get into the beginning of uh, chapter four, but remove your chapter breaks and just try to see the flow of Paul's letter here to his friends in Corinth. So it's uh, verses four through six. And I'll read verse six first and back up a little bit. So verse 6 of chapter 4. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you see that? The same God who spoke and light shone out of darkness. So it would indicate that physically, before the original creation, there's total darkness. God speaks and... The lights go on and everything is illuminated. Again, far superior to the little flashlight on the city streets when the street lights are out. Or on the the hiking path. Light filling all of creation spoken into existence by God's word. So this same God who did that at the original creation has also spoken by his word and has shown light into the spiritual darkness Here in Paul's time of writing in the first century, at the coming of Christ, God spoke into that spiritual darkness and he speaks into the hearts of each and every dead sinner to bring them to light. Whether in my time of creation 20 years ago or whenever you were saved, that is God speaking his marvelous light into spiritual darkness and the light switch goes on. That light then illuminates. The glory is seen in, to tie these verses together, the mirror That is Christ. Jesus is how we see God's glory. And now, filling in a bit of the middle, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. So the uh, unbelievers, those whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine So the gospel we've been speaking of today Is the gospel of the glory of Christ Christ is God's image He is the one who reflects As in a mirror God's glory To conceive of the gospel Without understanding this end point That we are seeing God That we are restored in fellowship to God Is to miss the mark it is to substitute the very nice journey, right? The really important marker steps along the way of guilt removed, righteousness imputed, glorified body, etc. It's to value and acknowledge those steps, but to miss the end point, to see God, to know His glory. God Himself, revealed in Jesus, is the end point, the core, the center, the heart. Of the gospel. So again, he does give good gifts gifts of salvation, freedom from guilt, hope of heaven, but those gifts are not ends in and of themselves. They are gospel goods insofar as the ultimate part of beholding the gospel is beholding God Himself, seeing God's glory. God is the ultimate good. Let us not mistake Him for His gifts. Right? parents who gives gifts at Christmas it's a blessing to be able to give physical things to your children but you don't want them to mistake the truck for the giver right? the giver of the gifts is so vastly more important than the gifts he gives so final remarks let me conclude with some, some key conclusions and maybe some more uh, warnings for you and cautions and encouragements again coming back to the issue of the possessive right? the genitive of possession in terms of the Greek words here God owns the gospel. And in terms of the genitive of source, he is the source of the gospel. Therefore, he sets the parameters, he makes the rules. If ever there's a point of confusion, how do I understand this gospel? Am I off track? Am I on track? We go to God's word, and he will direct our minds aright. That is how we can discern truth from error. And then, another implication of this, because there's one God, there's only one gospel, right? We can't have multiple gospels. If somebody starts articulating something a little different than what you understand, well, in all humility, it's okay to think first, well, maybe I've misunderstood it, but let's be Bereans and check it against the scriptures, right? And check it against the scriptures. If they do bring something that's different, it is so easy to say... Well, in your mind at least, away from me, Satan. You might not say that to them directly. Sometimes it would be appropriate if it turns out they're a Jehovah's witness or a Mormon evangelist. That is an appropriate thing to say. Get away from me. So having the knowledge that there is only one God, we know that there is only one gospel. And if that person brings another image, they are to be put away. They are a deception. They do not lead to light. They lead to Darkness. Person's work, their work, my work, anybody's work, other than Jesus' work, cannot save us. Doing better tomorrow will not save us. Doing good things in our own strength will not save us. It will not ultimately please God. Only doing godly things in God's power will sanctify us. And only having Jesus' doings applied to us can save us. That is our justification. One other secondary warning I'll pull in here in terms of the singularity of God and hence the singularity of the gospel is to be uh, discerning as to primary things and secondary things. So while within the broad category of the one true gospel, uh, there are a variety of things and I've emphasized, hopefully you're getting the point, don't mean to be too repetitive, but there is one primary thing, which is to say God himself and the restored relationship. But I do want to acknowledge there are many secondary things under that. And so I'm not saying that we uh, need mm. to dismiss all these other things, that they aren't important, but rather it's a question of proper place. So keep the first things first. Keep the primary thing primary. So did Jesus die on the cross for our sins? Yes, he did. And that is essential. Uh, by having faith in Jesus, will you go to heaven? Yes. And that is essential. Uh, is the kingdom of God expanding in our day? And is there a gospel command to go and disciple the nations? Yes, there is, and we are to be about that. Uh, Is God remaking the world, drawing all men to himself? Yes, he is. Uh, Is cultural revival or political transformation necessary and even possible by the Spirit's enabling work? It is. But all those are secondary things. They're not the main thing. The main thing is restored relationship with God. God's glory being seen in the face of God. Of Jesus, so that issue of priority, as an implication of there being one God and one gospel. So, as a final statement, brothers and sisters, the gospel is good news because while God is holy and we are born in sin, Jesus died for our sins, and God is fixing everything that was broken, to the end result that we can behold His glory we can enjoy his presence. And indeed, as saved Christians, we will do so forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the astounding nature of your gospel. We are far more wicked than we would often admit. But yet, when measured against your holiness, it is abundantly clear. Uh, We have no claim to your mercy. We have no claim to reconciliation or hope of forgiveness. It's only by your mercy and grace. And that mercy and grace having been extended and having been lived out by Jesus and brought to us personally in our uh, effectual call, in our regeneration, our new birth, it should all the more astound us that you are kind to us, that you regard us as sons and daughters. We did not deserve it. Uh, but you have been gracious to us. May we have a growing love for you and beholding your face in Christ. And may we, uh, out of that love poured into our hearts, have it abundantly flowing out into our extended family and neighbors in this whole civilization that is dying, Lord, that needs you for true life. And may it be so. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.